0: All right, my name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Grace and Peace. If it's your first time with us, either in person or online, welcome. Um, We've had a slightly hectic morning, but God is good all the time. So we have an amazing team of people who just pulled this off. And if you know what we had to deal with this morning, it was unlikely that that was going to happen. But our people are just that good. All right, um, so if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians 13. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible of any description, the text will be on the screen, so, so don't worry. Um, now, th- this passage, you know, I, I, I love the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there's a, a cocktail in, in the Hitchhiker's Galax- Guide to the Galaxy called the, the Pan-Galactic Garble Blaster. Uh, Which is described as having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a gold brick. Um, This passage is a lot like that. It is beautiful, both in its language and construction and message, and it also packs a wallop. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13. You're going to see that the passage actually backs up into the prior verse and continues through because this is one section. So we're going to go just from before in 1231. He says, I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Please pray with me. Lord, speak through your word now. I pray that we would hear for some of us very familiar words as if they're brand new. That you would speak into our lives, that you would speak into our church, that you would speak into our world with this incredible message of the more excellent way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Early in my time in ministry, I was being mentored by someone who had a a, a high reputation as a great church planter. So I was going to go learn from this guy, and I found myself during that time sitting in in a meeting with him where he was contemplating how to force out his co-pastor. Not only that, he wanted to force him out in such a way that he would leave of his own accord so he didn't have to pay him severance and so that he could not do damage to the church he was trying to plant. This seemed odd to me. <laughs> and so I, I asked, I was like, hey, um, you know, he's got four kids and your plan is to maneuver him out so he doesn't get severance? And I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he said, no one is bigger than the church. Now, in that moment, I, I internally went full Lily Thomas and say anything. That'll never be me. That'll never be me. No, never, 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 never. Don't you even think about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a great movie, and she's. <laughs> there, there, there's a really important question that every Christian and everyone who has any responsibility in the church, which is all of us, does the success of a ministry, does that end of success justify unloving means to get there? I I, I think many of us have had experiences of, oh yeah, this church has a really toxic leadership culture. Chews up staff and spits them out. Yeah, the pastor's a super narcissistic person, low character, terrible family life, but he pulls, he pulls, you know? So the end somehow justifies the unloving means. We often have an attitude or hear this attitude and it makes a certain amount of sense that the the, the good of the institution needs to be placed over the good of the people it serves, and when a ministry is highly successful, you know, it's, it's, it's expanded to site after site after site, it's, it's number one in everything, and there's all this stuff happening around it. We say, well, surely, surely God approves of this. Surely the work of God is being done, and that makes it all okay if you get there by unloving means, by harsh leadership. Yeah, if you need a narcissist in the pulpit, that's what you got to do to get there. And that makes a certain kind of sense to us. And and that is the situation that we're dealing with in Corinth as well. The church at Corinth had a very high opinion of itself. They were really sure that they were awesome, that God loved them, that God was working there. In fact, they were so sure of this, they looked down on Paul. A good portion of 1 Corinthians is spent with Paul convincing them he's worth listening to. because they had great knowledge and they had great wisdom. They were very proud of their their preaching. They were very proud of what they knew and they were especially proud, and Paul's dealing with it in this section, they were especially proud that they had the gift of tongues and prophecy. They're looking around at all this outpouring of all this stuff that surely this is the work of God and saying, hey, God's at work here, right? So what does it matter if we're a loveless church? What does it matter if we're divided by tribe? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. What does it matter if, we're, if we take the oppression of the poor that's in our society, ship it right into our church? What does that matter? Look at all that's happening. What does it matter that we're envious and competitive with one another, that we are, we are practically love-free environment? Does the end of doing God's work justify the unloving means of getting there? Well, we we just read that whole thing so that I could point out to you that it begins with the beginning. (laughs) It's a terrible joke. He says in in 1231, I will show you a still more excellent way. And middle, 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 all the way to the end, going into the next section, 14.1, he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, right? He's not saying the spiritual gifts are bad or anything like that. He's saying that love must accompany it, the pursuit of love. We need, as God's people, to pursue love. How does this answer this question of, does the end justify the means? Well, First of all, Paul tells us in verses 1 through 3, without love, you aren't doing the work of God. Without love, you aren't doing the work of God. Look at the things he says in verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, who's impressed by that? I am but have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can work miracles. Anybody impressed by this list? If you knew someone who spoke in tongues of men and angels, could prophesy, know everything, had faith that could perform miracles, and then look at the last one. He says, if I I give away all I have that is to the poor, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I go to martyrdom, who's impressed? Totally impressed. Like the Corinthians and us, if we knew someone who fit that description, who could do those things, we'd say, that's the work of God. That's got to be. Right? How do you speak in tongues, prophesy, know everything, have faith that performs miracles and all that, and it not be the work of God? What does Paul call it without love? Nothing. Worthless. Empty that sound like the work of god it is possible to be convinced that you're doing the work of god with every evidence around you but paul tells us here that without love it is worthless it is not the work of god even if it even if you have all the proofs there's a podcast i've been listening to and some of you have been listening to it's called the rise and fall of mars hill anyone yeah, you should listen to it. It is, it is extremely instructive. There's a part, there's a, a, a famous um, clip that Mars Hill, for those of you who don't know, was a mega, 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 mega. It was the, it was the new hotness for a long time, and it became like the, one of the most prominent churches in the country. And it was led by a, a pastor named Mark Driscoll. I, you know, there's no protecting the innocent here. And, uh, but he would say loud and proud. Like there was, there was this, this recording they keep playing of he's, he's, he's training church planters. And he says literally these words. I'm not adding. He says, there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by the grace of God, by the time we're done, there'll be a mountain. He was completely unabashed about the damage that their ministry did, that he did personally. And so they were fine. They were like, yeah, we got toxic leadership. Yeah, we, there's spiritual abuse happening all over the place. Yeah, he, our pastor's a narcissist. He was guilty of committing fraud to give himself a bestseller, shipwrecking people's lives, but it's all okay. You know why? Look at the growth. Look at, look at how many people are coming to Christ. Look, look, at, look at us doing the work of God. But Paul tells us here, without love even if it looks like you're doing the work of God even if you're so sure even if there's undeniable proof it is not the work of God I'll put this in this fly comes every week <laughs> very very faithful in its attendance <laughs> we could just get it to tithe that'd be awesome <laughs> putting it in our terms It does not matter if at the beginning of service, everyone's slain in the Holy Ghost and stays that way for the next hour and a half. Without love, that's not the work of God. It doesn't matter if you have started the coolest church and like K-pop bands go there and Justin Bieber. Somehow everybody knows where Bieber goes to church, you know. That doesn't matter. That's not the work of God if there is not love there. You could have four PhDs after your name and have the most pristine theology preached every week, and without love, that is nonsense. Without love, it doesn't matter how successful grace and peace is. It doesn't matter how many community groups we add. It doesn't matter. It's all worthless. If we are not a community that is formed, by love. So in terms of ends and means, we've got to first of all say that, that, that we've got to understand without love, we're not doing the work of God, no matter how much it appears that we are. So how do we do the work of God? Because means are as important as ends. I mean, this whole question of the, means, uh, the ends justifying the means, if you use the wrong means, you won't get the right ends. I, I heard recently, this, this just this week, there was a story of a language school in Singapore. Anybody hear about this? There was a language school in Singapore. it was new, and they were trying to recruit students. You know what means they used to do this? They had recruiters go to schools, and when students came out of the school, they would hand them flyers dressed as clowns. (laughs) Does that seem like a plan? Hey kids, here's a clown handing you a flyer. It wants you to come with it. Uh, anybody see a problem with the means getting to the desired ends? Needless to say, it didn't work. The children ran in terror. The the wrong means are not going to achieve the right end. You will not build a community that feels like Jesus with harsh, narcissistic, I don't care, good of the institution over the good of the people type of leadership. You will also not build a community that feels like Jesus with entertainment. It is not the means that achieves God's end. Well, what, what is this more excellent way? Paul's told us what the excellent way isn't, so what is it? He starts defining the excellent way for us in verses 4 through 7. Look look with me at this. If you haven't looked at your Bible yet, look, at, look now. We're, we're going to look at some of these words in detail. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So he gives us some knots. This is what love doesn't look like. And then he gives us some this is what love is. So what what do all those things have in common? The the knots. It does not envy. Right? Some, something good happens for somebody else, and I'm furious, <laughs> right? It does not boast. It's not puffing itself up. It's not trying to gain status. It is not arrogant. It's not sitting there saying, I'm the smartest person in this room, probably the best person in this room, probably the best looking too, right? It's not rude. That word means that, that you would flagrantly violate what's considered polite. That sounds ticky-tack, but like if I come to your, your granny's house for dinner, cuss her out and insult the cooking, that's not loving, is it? That's rude. Love doesn't do that. Love does not insist on its own way. For goodness sake, arrogance, boasting, uh, envy, rudeness, and insisting on your own way sounds like, sounds like uh, you know a resume of a, lot of a lot of leaders in the church, doesn't it? We're looking for someone who's really charismatic. Yeah, they boast. Yeah, they're whatever, and this and that. But, like, that's not the way. Love does not tear down. Instead, love builds up. Interestingly, love in Paul's day was, they had a completely different, like, Paul's definition of love here is completely unique. He does not define it as er anything to do with erotic experience, ecstatic experience, and nothing to do with emotions. Instead, what we see is that love is an attitude which results in actions that build others up. Love is an attitude that results in actions that builds others up. Look at what love does. It's patient. Right? It'll wait. It will bear with. It is kind. That uh, slight under-translation, kind there means the type of person who does things for others that benefit them. That's what the word for kind there means. Then, uh, um, not rejoicing at wrong, we're not sure what rejoicing at wrongdoing and rejoicing at the truth mean, but love doesn't do one, it does do the other. (laughs) And then look at verse seven. Love bears all things. In community, you gotta bear things, don't you? We have to put up with each other. We all suck. Like We all need bearing with. We really do. We're all difficult. You're all difficult. I'm difficult. Without love, we cannot have community. It doesn't it, we we can't build a community. You got to bear with the difficulties of someone else. I love this one. It believes all things. It believes the best about somebody. You know, you ever get those 50-50 balls? Hey, why didn't why didn't Marcel say hello to me this morning? I could fill that gap with suspicion and say, oh, "It's cuz he hates me." because I must have done something. It's because he's a jerk. (laughs) Or I could fill it with trust. He didn't hear me. He's distracted. Um, He's still getting over COVID (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) He's turning 40. He's got a lot on his mind. Right? That's filling it with trust. That's believing the best about him. So it bears all things. Believes all things. It hopes all things. It doesn't give up hope on a person it doesn't write them off and say there is no chance they change again and again love comes back with hope for that person doesn't matter that they've failed you a million times in the past doesn't matter that they've screwed up and fallen into the same problems again and again and again love does not give up hope and i love how he he, he bookends this look what he says Laugh. It, last it lasts it endures all things so even when They screw up again. Even when they disappoint your expectations, even when they fail, what does it do? It continues to endure. That's what love does. If we did that, we'd build a a beautiful community, wouldn't it? Love does not tear down. Love builds up. Love is the means to do the work of God. Love is the means to do the work of God. We need to pursue love. Each of us, do things to tear down a community we all do that we're irritable we're rude all that stuff we need to pray that the lord works to remove those things from us so that we're not tearing our community down instead we need to commit to building up hope all things believe all things and do all things with one another now, I'm sorry to disappoint some of you guys who, who understood this passage to be talking about romantic love. has nothing to do with that. I'm really sorry. You can still read it at a wedding because if you do the things that love does, there will be more romance in your life. Guarantee it. <laughs> things will tend to work out that way for you. <laughs> so who do we commit to building up? If you're married, build up your spouse. You're not going to get your perfect spouse by constant criticism. Doesn't work. Does not work. It's been tried. It doesn't work. (laughs) Building them up is where you're really going to see true change. The people that you go to church with. How often are we building each other up? On purpose. With intentionality. Your pastor. That's me. (laughs) Some of you guys send me texts to encourage me. They mean the world to me. I know I don't text back because I'm really (laughs) bad at texting. (laughs) But I find them highly encouraging. Your kids, if you have kids. Criticism. Constantly telling them what they're doing wrong as the steady diet. That is not going to build up a disciple that loves Jesus and loves people. Loving them is, building them up. Your friends. How many of us are like, yeah, that friend's gotten difficult. I'm, bailing, I'm, I'm pushing the button on this. They're going through a hard time, really high-cost hang. Love endures it. Love bears it for a friend. And, you know, I, this isn't like random people online. Because I, I notice we, we do tear down random people online that we don't know. Some of us spend a lot of time doing that. What if we flipped that switch and said, you know what, I'm going to build people up instead, even if I don't like them. Maybe especially if I don't like them. Now, that is the means. So, without love, we're not doing the work of God. Love is the means to do the work of God. And, and, and so, we have to ask also, what is the end? Now, this point... It's going to take particular attention-paying. We're going to get into some pretty detailed exegesis of the text. But understanding what the end is is ultra-important to what you do right now. It isn't, I worry about it when I get there. It, it, it has everything, like, like Nick, we're going to get in the car and, and, and I ask you, Nick, what's the best way? What do you want to know? Yeah, where, are we going? where are we going? What's the end? What's the goal here? Because if we're going to Wyoming... There's one way we take, right? There's one means we use. If we're going to New Mexico, there's another. If we're going to Shake Shack, we're not even, like, that's down the block. We're not even using the car. Want to go to Shake Shack? Yeah, let's go to Shake Shack. <laughs> I think that often we mistake means and ends. And this whole discussion about, hey, do the ends justify the means? I think that we're looking at the means as the ends big churches and all this stuff and ministry success that's not the end is it that's merely a means so also this was the same this was the same case for the the church at corinth they had mistaken the ends for the means And, and look at how paul straightens them out starting in verse eight he says love never ends as for prophecies they will pass away now the word here and this is where you have to pay close attention That might be a bit of an under translation. That is a future passive pluperfect. Yeah, I said it (laughs) It's a future passive pluperfect. You would you would actually say that it will have been made obsolete so Prophecies will have been made obsolete. It continues as for tongues. They will have been made obsolete as For we know in part and knowledge as well same thing we know in part we prophesy in part But when the perfect comes, bookmark that word, the partial will have been made obsolete. So he's saying these things that you're looking at as the end, the tongues and prophecy, this is what you're hanging your hat on? These are provisional. These are temporary. And something's going to happen. The perfect is going to come that is going to render them obsolete. How obsolete? He gives us two Analogies. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I, I mean, those, uh, when I was six years old, I, was having a, I remember a conversation with my friend. Who, he said, marriage is dumb. I was like, why? He said, well, what if you see a prettier girl? You know, then you can't go marry her. I was like, dude, you sewed that up for me. That's airtight, right? And That, that sounded very reasonable at six years old. Not so reasonable now. Some other 45-year-old men could probably learn that too. (laughs) Anyway, so he's saying the first analogy is that tongues and prophecy, this is like child reasoning compared to adult reasoning. You don't use it anymore. right? It's obsolete. And he gives us a second one. for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face now. I know in part then I shall know fully Even as I have been fully known so uh, a a a dim mirror, right? That, that's the closest they had to FaceTime <laughs> it, It's the difference between the, between FaceTime and being in the room with somebody Partly you can kind of talk to them. You know something about the person, but you don't use FaceTime like my wife's out of town right now I'm FaceTiming her not as we speak, but regularly When she comes back, I'm not gonna FaceTime her anymore. Why? She's in the room. So there is something that's going to occur which makes these tongues, prophecies, all this stuff obsolete to the point that the most ecstatic experience and the deepest knowledge will seem like cloudy mirrors and childhood reasoning. So what is this word, Perfect what Th- this this is one of the examples where English really struggles to translate the Greek? Okay, because some of your translations it might say the perfect has come some say when the completeness has come or when the end Has come that doesn't mean the finish, but the the achievement of the goal It's the Greek word telion, um, Which is the advert which is the the adjective of telos um, Which means achievement end or goal? so what does it mean here? There, there's four proposals, I will tell you right now. The first three, I believe, are wrong, and the last one's right. That's the way you do things. Um, so some propose that it means maturity, right? Spiritual maturity, that when you get spiritually mature, you won't want tongues anymore. That the word teleon is used of spiritual maturity elsewhere in the New Testament, but. Why would, so Paul is encouraging them, right? Remember? Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Why would he be des- encouraging them to desire immaturity? That doesn't make much sense, does it? The second proposal is that when the church is up and running, when they have clergy and they have all the structures, right? I want to point out they had all that and this is based on some faulty historical research that assumed the early church was kind of loosey-goosey and it didn't get structured till later so not a not a great suggestion Uh, the next one is is that that it's referring to the completion of the new testament okay and uh our brothers and sisters in christ who hold this position are are called cessationists they're saying When the New Testament was completed, there was no more need for tongues and prophecy. Some of you may hold this view, and, you know, it's all love, but I do think it is incorrect, and here's why. Paul was decades dead before the last books of the Bible were written. So unless you believe that Paul was having some sort of trance-out vision, where he's like, I'm seeing something. Tongues and prophecy is going to go away. Oh, Hebrews is voted it. Yes, Hebrews is done. It's, that's going to happen. <laughs> right? Also, it's pretty lexically weak. It's lexically weak. It's not how the word is used. There's no other examples in the Bible where teleon is used about Scripture. Okay? And also, it doesn't make much sense with the text. Why is it a big deal That love would continue even when the New Testament is completed. You follow that? Because he starts this whole thing saying, love never ends. Here's how never-ending it is. Prophecy will go away. Tongues will go away. But even after the New Testament's done, we're still going to love. That's not much of a wallop, is it? Instead, the teleon refers to the kingdom of Christ coming. The end, the finish, the completion of redemption that when our fellowship with Jesus is restored, the most ecstatic experience of speaking with tongues is going to (laughs) be laughable. The deepest knowledge and the best scholarship we have right now is going to sound like childhood reasoning compared to how well we know God in the kingdom. But the point is, is that only love continues in the kingdom. He starts it in verse 8, love never ends. All this stuff passes away, but even after the kingdom has come, love continues. Look at verse 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, that is, remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In the kingdom, will we need faith? No, faith becomes sight. Will we need hope? No, hope is realized. Love will continue. So what that means is that when we are engaging in love, when love is characterizing our lives, we are living as if the kingdom is here right now. And that continues right into the kingdom of God. Love keeps us on course for the goal. We, wa- we want to know whether or not we're within the will of God. Don't look at the, don't look at the success metrics. Look at love. Follow love. Pursue love. My fear is that many churches, and us too, would spend our precious days focused on the wrong end. That if ministry success, scare quotes for those listening online, is our end, we'll have wasted our time and our effort and our money and everything else. I'm gonna keep it real with you. I've reached a point in life where it is likely I have more days behind than I do ahead, as have some of you guys as well. I don't wanna reach the end of my days and say, well, that was dumb. (laughs) I don't wanna look back and say, what a waste. How do we avoid that? It's to keep on track with God's goal. How do we do that? Love not the emotion, not the ecstatic experience, the attitude of the heart that seeks to bless others. We need to pursue love because without love, we are not doing God's work. Love is the means to do the work of God and love keeps us on course for the end. Please pray with me. God, may we be a loving people. May we not be distracted by the spurious glory of success. Instead, that we would focus with laser intensity on your goal, on your kingdom, as living as your people, a people characterized by the love of Jesus. Amen.